Once upon a time, it was considered rather odd to travel all the way to the south of France for some fun in the sun. And they came back to town, to Paris eventually, with a suntan, which was a shock to everybody, because before that, the suntan was for the workers, for the people in the fields. You might detect a provincial accent in today's French-themed edition of Travel with Rick Steves. We'll open with tips for enjoying the stylish Mediterranean playground on the Riviera. Author Graham Robb shares what a four-year bike adventure across France taught him about the country, including how local pride sometimes includes a bit of Paris bashing. And if you're in a slightly xenophobic area in France, very often the worst thing to be is a Parisien. And we'll investigate your options for memorable day trips from Paris. Louis XIV designed the elaborate gardens at Versailles to make quite an impression on visitors. And he loved his gardens. He even wrote a little booklet, How to Visit My Gardens. Viva la France on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Year after year, global tourism numbers confirm that the most popular country in the entire world to visit is France. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll take a look at a few of the reasons why. We'll share tips for impressive day trips you can take from Paris. And author Graham Robb shares what he discovered about the multifaceted culture of France after riding the French back roads by bike for four years. Second to Paris, the abundance of sunshine on the Mediterranean coast of southeast France makes it among the most popular regions to visit. For an overview of the attractions you'll find along the Côte d'Azur, we're joined now by French tour guides Virginie Moret and Patrick Vidal. Virginie and Patrick, welcome. Bonjour. Bonjour. So when we think about the Côte d'Azur and the French Riviera, uh, first of all, are those terms interchangeable, the French Riviera and Côte d'Azur? Well, we call it la Côte d'Azur, and in English, you call it the French Riviera. The French Riviera, the name comes from the extension from the Italian Riviera. And the British and the Russian came in the late uh, mid-19th uh, century, late 19th century. We call it la Côte d'Azur, the coast of the azur, which is the color, because the, the sea is a very different color over there. So I, I guess that makes sense. You've got the Italian Riviera, and then just over the border it continues, but it's the French Riviera. Now, you mentioned the British and the Russians were sort of instrumental in kicking off this whole idea of a playground on the Mediterranean. Why would that be? Well, never been to Russia. I've been to England. Winters are pretty miserable. So if, you, if you're sick, you're going to go there. If you have money, you're going to go there because the weather is amazing. I mean, even people from northern France, that's where they go during the, the winter time. So the elites of the Romanov dynasty exactly. and the big shots in England, they would go for some sunshine. And just like we got snowbirds in the United States, they got some snowbirds in Russia and England, and they would go to perhaps arguably the most civilized and elegant stretch of the Riviera back then, or the Mediterranean back then, the French coast, the French Riviera. Patrick, the French people are sort of leaders in vacations. You guys invented the whole Club Med idea, and you I think the word vacation is a French word. After the revolution with that heritage, you're very careful that workers have a good break. What is it about vacation in the French culture? Well, it's a big part of civilization overall. I mean, you know... You, but you but we work much longer than you do. Don't you aspire to work until you get to an early grave? That's, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly how we see it. You live to work, you don't work to live. Uh, and for us, it's a very, very important part of our life. I mean, you start a new job somewhere and you straight away, in, in your first year, you're going to be able to take five years off. Five, five years, sorry. Five weeks off. That's your five dream, five, five years. Five years off. Five years that's, off. That's, that's me. <laughs> that's, that's only me. So, but five weeks is the standard vacation. It's the standard vacation. To start yeah. with, almost. To start yeah. with. Now, the French Riviera is easy access from Paris now, three or four hours by the TGV, the, the bullet train. 
and cheap flights going down also. If you were a hard-working Parisian and you're going to take a vacation in the French Riviera, what's the classic French approach to a vacation on the Riviera, Virginie? If you stay on the French Riviera, it means you like crowds, probably. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're going there during the French holidays, which are usually July and August. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's late night with the local jet set, um, going to the Pebble Beach. Mm-hmm. If you're staying in Nice, not on the sand, but it's massaging you at the same time. So why not? Pebble Beach is okay. And maybe a bit of showing off when you go to the nice restaurant and you have your seafood, your wine, and you can uh, watch people a different way from uh, the Parisian cafe. So it is not getting away from it all. It's kind of culture on show. You're going down there. You know it's going to be crowded because it's vacation time. And you put up with that and you kind of like to make the scene and be seen. Yeah, you bring your best bikini or monokini or just, you know. Patrick, what's your take on a Parisian's dream vacation? Well, what we very often forget is that uh, originally when we were starting holidays and that's how the Brit and the Russian came down, they came in winter not in summer. Oh, yeah, that's right. The first houses built on the Côte d'Azur were not built along, along the sea. They were built up the hill because the air was drier and the winter was nicer up there. And it's only in the 19, uh, 1930s, Scott Fitzgerald, uh, Coco Chanel, and a crowd of people like that started to come down to, to do summer holidays. The story says that uh, officially one hotel owner in Jean Lepin had a bad winter, bad winter, so not enough people coming in, so he decided for once to open in the summer. So some people started to come down there and they came back to town, to Paris eventually, with a suntan, which was a shock to everybody because before that, the suntan was for the workers, for the people in the fields. Right. The aristocrats, the wealthy people are white. They would get have umbrellas to help Absolutely. them from the sun. Yes. Yeah. You don't get in the sun. The sun is a sign of, of uh, Being peasant, farmers class, yeah. and, and, and working class. So they came back with a, with a suntan. We did a big scandal. Coco Chanel was one of the first ones. And little by little, that turned the thing around that now the holidays are in summer and not in winter. And we, we're not very logical in that, you know. In the, in the summer, we're looking for the scorching hot places, and in the winter, we go to the coldest <laughs> place we can find. That's true, isn't it? There's a lot of migration to the Alps in the winter and down to the beach. And in fact, if you hit the, the auto route, right, that's the word for the autobahn, the freeway in France, auto route, if you hit that on the wrong day, you can be in a big traffic jam. Huge Ooh. tip on that. If you travel in summer, don't travel on Saturdays. Really? Because Saturday is the day the people are renting houses from. So that's the turnover day because house, turnover day. houses are rented from Saturday to Saturday. Absolutely. So that's the day to avoid that's the That's a road. huge thing. You don't travel I on Saturdays. Very good tip. Now, back in the 20s when this all started out, is that when like Saint-Tropez became famous? Uh, today, what is the Saint-Tropez scene? Because it seems like there's sort of a well-worn kind of old school resort and then there are newer places to go. Well, Saint-Tropez is historically, it's not historic, not that mm-hmm. long, but, uh, but as mm-hmm. we can say, uh, the rich and famous place. It's really the place where Brigitte Bardot used to live and people uh, with, uh, with fame and money uh, used to come down. It's been worn out. It's not as important as it used to be. Even though Brigitte Bardot made the Saint-Tropez scene Well, she's not a sight you want to see anymore nowadays. <laughs> I think in Saint-Tropez, instead of seeing famous people, you're going to see tourists looking for famous for famous people. people. <laughs> and yes. tourists paying yes, famous people prices for things. <laughs> French tour guides Patrick Vidal and Virginie Moret are walking us through the all-season pleasures of the Côte d'Azur in southern France right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Virginie, if you had one week apart from Saint-Tropez and you were going to spend it on the Riviera, where would you go as a sightseer more than just somebody who's going to lay on the beach? So I would, I would base myself still in Nice because even though uh, you have the seaside and it's a big city, it's a lovely city and you can use the public transportation to explore the coast more in detail. All these little beautiful towns along the river, to me it's like a charm bracelet. Every couple of miles you got a new delightful stop 
and the trains connect them all effortlessly, and there's even a bus, isn't there? For just a couple dollars, you get a single bus ticket. So we're talking about making Nice your headquarters, and then where, where would you go? I would explore in uh, little villages. I mean, places are touristy, so again, avoid the big season in the summer. But the village of Ez, even though there are lots of uh, tourists, so it's spelled E-Z-E, and you have the village, which is on top of a cliff. And if you go up, up, up to the top, you have less people. You're looking right down at Monte Carlo, Monaco. Well, you? But yeah, you're very, very close. And very, you're, close you're very close. But you have an amazing view uh, on the sea also. And uh, at the top, they have the Jardin with lots of cacti, mm. hundreds of different cacti there. And it's just, you know, not many people make it to the top. So okay. at least that's a way to get out of the crowds. Or then you can walk down also to the, the sea from the cliffs, the top of the village. That's a beautiful to the walk. Sea. Mm-hmm. And then what other highlights would you have, Patrick, along the river? By stay, staying on this side, on the eastern part of uh, Nice, uh, I love the little village of Villefranche-sur-Mer because we are very close to Nice. We can do almost the same thing that if we were staying in Nice. But you've got a village atmosphere and you've got sandy beaches as well. So. This is very important. Nice has the stony pebble beaches, which are, are nice. It's like a hot rock massage, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Say. But just a 20-minute bus ride away almost, or even yes, a bicycle yeah, ride away. Yeah, yeah, you've got uh, villefranche what is it called? Villefranche-sur-Mer. So the Villefranche on upon the sea. Upon the sea, yeah. Now, yeah. I just came in on a cruise ship, and cruise ships have one of three ports on the Riviera. You can, they can stop in Monte Carlo, they can stop in Nice, or they can anchor outside of Villefranche-sur-Mer. And we tendered in to Villefranche from our cruise ship, and then I walked five minutes to the train, hop on the train, and in a few minutes I'm in wherever, Antibes, Nice, Monte Carlo. It's a beautiful arrangement. Yeah, and that's, that's a big, big uh, importance to the town itself because there's a lot of people coming through the town. There's a little market down there. It's the only place in France where you don't have a, a day for the market. The market is there when the boat is in the uh, harbor. Okay, so that would make a, a, a huge boost to the business. Voilà. Now, when I'm in Nice and Villefranche and these areas, there's an Italian flavor. Uh, Virginie, why is that? Well, it used to be part of Italy until the 1860. Mm-hmm. So you will have an uh, Italian uh, aspect for the food and also the architecture. When you look mm-hmm. at the houses, the colors mm-hmm. are, you know, you'll see lots of pink and green. Mm. And you're going to see those uh, shutters for the window that we don't have in the rest of France. They are very different. They have a system of uh, ventilation that we don't really see. So when any. Italy was uniting the people in this part of France, the very southeastern tip of France next to Italy had a chance to vote to join the new country of Italy or to stick with France? And yes, it was, a, it was a bit of a fight. There was a lot of people who wanted to stay on the Italian side. But technically, it was making more sense to get this part of the Riviera on the French side because you didn't have to pass the mountain to get to the rest of France uh, when, uh, when it was difficult to get to Italy. This is Travel Trek Steves. We're talking about the French Riviera with Virginie Moret and Patrick Vidal. Virginie and Patrick, I'd like to finish just with your, your favorite little moment. I mean, there's so much we have just scratched the surface. My favorite moment, from a history point of view, might be going to the Trophy of the Alps. It's uh, this Roman... What is the word for this? It's the Roman... Uh, le Trophée des Alpes in la Turbie, Roman Triumphal Arch. Yeah, yeah the yeah. Roman Triumphal... Up, up in the mountains above the Riviera, where the Roman emperor built a, a trophy, a big triumphal arch, to celebrate. He had subdued the barbarians, and that was the end of the war, and it was the beginning, I think, of the Pax Romana. Oh, it's, a, um, it's a huge thing. Okay, that's heavy history. Why don't you guys give me some heavy hedonism? How would you sum up your... Just, just one little vignette. What's a beautiful part of your... French Riviera experience, especially if you were a guy taking an American around. Patrick? I would think a little bit about food because it's a great thing around here. And uh, when you go to the Marché aux Fleurs on the Course Alléa in, uh, in Nice, you got those stalls which are mm. so appetizing. A couple of the big specialties which are easy to eat around in Nice, you, can, you don't have to sit down. You can have just a little sandwich or, or something around. And the two main ones are what we call the pan bagna, okay. which is a little round bowl of bread that you cut in two. And inside, you put a salad niçoise. 
And the salad niçoise is tuna, green beans, tomatoes, olives. After that, it's going to be different things, olive oil on it and different things according to who's doing it. But it's a very, very easy food uh, mm. on the go. And all over Europe, I, I like to have a salad niçoise. That means a salad from the culture from of Nice. Nice, absolutely. N-I-C-E. Yeah. And where better to have it than in Nice itself? What is the main square there, the Cour Salia? What is The Cour Salia, S-A-L-E-Y-A. And it's a marketplace. Virginie. I would walk through the Cour Salia, pick up some food, some soca, which is a chickpea uh, crepe mm-hmm. that they have over there, some olives, and then to digest all of this, I would walk up the chateau, which is the castle uh-huh. hill over there. There's no more castle. And then there's a waterfall. Try to find a spot when there is nobody. And you have an amazing view over La Baie des Anges, which is the name of the bay in Nice, the Bay of Angels, mm-hmm. and a view over the old town of Nice. Mm. So you have the sea the Italian-style roofs, and then you get your food. After this discussion, I'm going to make a point to go to the French Riviera on my next trip to Europe. I promise you that. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been celebrating the wonders of the French Riviera, the south coast of France, with Virginie Moret and Patrick Vidal. Merci bien to both of you. Merci, Rick. We'll look into memorable day trips from Paris in just a bit. But first, author Graham Robb spent four years exploring France by bicycle staying in the small towns that don't make it into the guidebooks, showed him how the country's regional differences combined to make France a genuinely diverse nation. He tells us what he discovered next on Travel with Rick Steves. On the surface, you might not notice what distinguishes the people who live in one region of France from another. But it's barely 200 years since the Republic of France centralized its authority in Paris and decided to enforce French as the common language. That was all part of an effort to forge a national identity, from the Pyrenees to the Alps, from Marseille to Brittany, and everywhere in between. Author Graham Robb took four years to study local customs and identities all across France. He scoured the countryside on a bicycle and concluded that this variety forms a sort of mosaic that makes France probably the most diverse nation in Europe. From his research, he wrote a landmark book called The Discovery of France, a historical geography from the Revolution to the First World War. It won prestigious awards in Britain within a couple of months of being published. Graham has written a similarly impressive book about the history of the Celts. Graham, merci for joining us again on Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks for inviting me, Rick. You biked 14,000 miles all around France and spent four years in the library. How did the 14,000 miles of biking help you write a book about the discovery of France? The... 14,000 miles were really just, uh, it was a vacation. Uh, My wife and I don't own a car and we like cycling. And France is one of the best countries in Europe to cycle because um, so many people do it and drivers are very courteous. And what I really wanted to know was what are all those little places that we are passing through? Because when you're on a bicycle, you notice so many things and you remember things very vividly. So it was really just, starting to find out what information there was on these tiny little places that don't appear in any tour guide. And in the old days, which was about more than more than 10 years ago, I would just print out all the information I could find on sheets of thin paper, which could be carried in the bicycle panniers and thrown away as we uh, went through each place and, and read about it. And eventually I realized I'd amassed so much information that we enjoyed reading about, I thought I should turn this into a book that will put the picture together and, and make it easier to see what it is we're not seeing when we, we drive through these places too quickly. 
Now, you set out to write a book on histor- the history of France, but really, you got so close to the culture, you realized uh, the French were not really what you thought they were. Yes. I think, like a lot of people who study French literature, which I did, at some point, if you go to France, you realize you don't know France at all. And funnily enough, when I got my PhD in French literature at Vanderbilt University, after I graduated, my thesis director, who's French, said, uh, you know, you don't have a PhD in French literature. You have a PhD in Parisian literature. And it's true that when we say French literature, we mean literature that was produced in that tiny little space, which is central Paris. And even if the writer like Balzac or Victor Hugo came from the provinces, they had to go to Paris in order to become a writer. And beyond Paris, Paris is like ancient Rome, and its empire is France. And beyond it, there are all these different provinces, which were effectively different countries. And even within each province, there are much smaller areas, which the French call pays, which comes from Pagos, or the area occupied by a particular tribe or sub-tribe which have their own identity, both in language and dialect, in their geography, in their outlook on life. And that's what you begin to discover if you walk or cycle through those areas slowly enough. Hmm. Because, you know, I've always thought of France as leading the pack and creating a centralized government and having a national identity. And uh, maybe in, in some ways it did, but you point out in your book, 100 years ago, French was a foreign language to the majority of the people living in, quote, France, and it certainly... Not quite that simple. So in a way, France had to do some nation-building within its own borders. You're quite right. They did set an example in nation-building. And when you look at some of the first uh, actions of the revolutionary government after the French Revolution of 1789, you can see them discovering the country in which they lived, and they sent out investigators to explore these different regions and sent out a questionnaire simply asking, which language do people speak in your part of France? And that's how they discovered, to their horror, that most of the people in France couldn't read the decrees that were being made by the revolutionary government. That's so interesting, because when you think of the French Revolution, it followed a period when all of Europe declared war on France and uh, was going to fight and fight and fight until they squashed this notion of, uh, you know, getting rid of the old regime. And France had the levy en masse, right? The first time everybody was involved in a war, but most of these people didn't even consider themselves French. So they had a little bit of promotion to do for this cause. That's true. And the same thing happened in the First World War, actually, that uh, people in some parts of France, in the far west in Brittany and in the far east in Alpine regions. <laughs> it's like, why do I want to help many these guys? People, yes. And in fact, they had no idea what was going on. And there are many stories of uh, soldiers in the French army fighting the Germans who were shot by their own side because they were speaking Breton or some other non-French language and were no, mistaken this is for the enemy. In World War One. Yes, in World War One. You're kidding. Yeah. French troops who couldn't communicate with their French commanders because they weren't from Paris, basically. Yes, and because they spoke a, ah. a completely different language. And these weren't just dialects. These are, are separate languages that were all spoken within France. So they could have been saying Vive la France in Britain and they misunderstood. Couldn't. Yeah, they're unlikely to have been saying vive la France because a lot of people (laughs) didn't consider themselves French. They considered themselves Breton or or Gascon. So before the French Revolution, what did the name France refer to then? 
France uh, really referred just to the central province, which is now called the Ile de France. The Ile de France. The area around Paris. France was a place that was somewhere else. And it was associated with the capital, with Paris. And you you still find that today. There's still um, an antagonism towards people from Paris as though they came from a different country. And if you're in a slightly xenophobic area in France, very often the worst thing to be is a Parisien. And it's funny because when I wrote a book about Parisians, my French publisher who uh, published a translation of it said, well, we can't call it Parisien Mm. because Parisians on its own sounds too much like an insult. But you wrote in your book that today that's starting to change and the people in Paris will more readily tell you their roots are from Brittany or Corsica or something like this. Yes, there's a kind of romantic uh, attachment to certain provinces. <laughs> but uh, A generation point, ago, that was a different thing. Yes, a very different thing, yes. And, and people still are very often attached to their native province as, as though to a, a different country. Graham Robb is the author of The Discovery of France, of which a New York Times reviewer says he reintroduced France to itself. He's also the author of Parisians, an adventure history of Paris, and he's written biographies of Balzac, Rimbaud, and Victor Hugo. Graham writes about the historical importance of the Celts before the Roman Empire in The Discovery of Middle-Earth, Mapping the Lost World of the Celts. Graham Robb's latest work is Coals and Passes of the British Isles. We have links to his works in the notes to this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Graham, when you think about ancient tribal areas of France still enduring, I mean, it's a romantic thing for a traveler to think they can find the old cultural identities. And, you know, you go to Languedoc or places in, in the fringe of France and, and you find the pride still there today. Where are some places that you'd recommend where you're really struck by how the people are probably more identifying with their local region than with France as a whole? I think one of the best places to go to, to rediscover that, that tribal France is probably the Pyrenees because you can get to the Pyrenees very easily along those lovely flat valleys that spread out like the the fingers of a hand. You can get up to the high valleys quite easily. Mm -hmm. And because of the geography of the place, I mean, it's hellish for a cyclist in the Pyrenees, you will come across very small places which are isolated for much of the year and which aren't particularly antagonistic to foreigners. And you can see people living in much the same way that they've lived for hundreds of years. And if you go from one area to the next, you don't have to force yourself to observe everything. Just notice things as you go along. What do you notice? You will see the differences. Is it the culture, the cuisine, the language, the way people look and dress? What do you notice as you're biking through these areas that you go, oh boy, these people are are more, you know, Basque than they are French? Well, I'll tell you, uh, if you're on a bicycle, what you really notice is the different behavior of dogs. You'll be in some area and the dogs will bark at you and run out and attack you. And um, and usually you don't spend too much time in those places. And then in another place, the dogs will be friendly and they'll run up to you. Or in another place, they'll ignore you. And that's, in some ways, more revealing than uh. human behavior because they haven't been trained uh, to be polite or they, they don't have opinions on tourists. And very often the behavior of domestic animals does reflect something in, in that particular community. And actually, the places in the Pyrenees where you find dogs at their most hostile are the places which lie on the ancient Compostela pilgrim routes, 
because they see lone strangers coming through throughout the year, really, and are very often suspicious of these people who aren't uh, doing trade, who are just passing through right. and, and who aren't from the region. Now, most people, when they think of the uh, community Santiago, they think it, of it kicking off at San Juan Pied de la Por up in the uh, Pyrenees Mountains, and then they walk for about a month to get to Santiago de Compostela in the northwest of Spain. But historically, the trek, the pilgrimage, starts in Paris. Did you encounter much of the Camino de Santiago north of the Pyrenees between Paris and the mountains that separate France and Spain? Yes, quite a lot. And there are hundreds of pilgrims who still follow the ancient routes. And the church apparently allows you to complete the pilgrimage on horseback and on a bicycle, because for some reason the bicycle is reputed to be a particularly exacting form of transport, which it isn't. So very often you find yourself talking to pilgrims who, who assume that you are on mm. a pilgrimage like them. And you, you meet a lot of fascinating people, and quite often uh, people who are doing it barefoot, mm. just like uh, medieval pilgrims. Well, you saw this on your bike experience then, pilgrims. Oh, yes, yes, and people from all over the world. As you're traveling around France, you're likely to see that conch shell, the, the symbol of the pilgrim, that shell that has like a bunch of uh, fingers going out from a, a starting point, and it's often with uh, yellow outlines. But I was just in Chartres, and I noticed that was on the community Santiago there. Yes, it is. So there were several routes snaking down through France, which probably predate the shrine mm -hmm. at Santiago de Compostela. So they, they really are ancient routes, and a lot of them were originally the routes that were taken by transhumant flocks of sheep and, and cattle and goats when they were heading for the summer pastures in, in the high mountains. Oh, so the pilgrims in the Middle Ages were following paths made by, by the, the animals. <laughs> yes, because very often there was no road. There was Fascinating. just a, a, yeah, a zone of back transit. Back then, most of the serious travel would have done on rivers and on, by boat, I understand. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Graham Robb. His book is The Discovery of France and all the things you learned from four years in a library, okay, but also 14,000 miles pedaling through this arguably the most diverse country in Europe. Graham, we were talking about mean dogs being an indication that there's a lot of local pride mm -hmm. in a region. Also, when you travel around France, you, you see a lot of castles and military fortifications embedded deep within this centralized and well-established biggest nation in Western Europe. What do you learn when you look at castles within the country, reminding us that it wasn't always one big country? Well, it, it does remind you that modern France probably existed in that shape maybe 2,000 years ago before the Romans came, when there was a, an alliance of Celtic tribes. But in almost all the intervening period, there were frontiers all over France uh, that weren't necessarily natural frontiers. If you come from Britain, very often people refer to the fact that a lot of the southwest used to be English. And in fact, that's where the uh, wine-growing uh, region of Bordeaux came from. This was mm. to, to satisfy the English market, and people will, will joke about it. But as you say, you have very clear signs of what used to be hmm. the frontiers, because France, after all, is a kind of crossroads of the, the Western European isthmus. You know, it's on the Mediterranean, it's on the Atlantic, it's on the North Sea, so it's hmm. always been a, a zone of, of transit so rather true. than the, the fixed entity. The Loire Valley is a particularly uh, vivid example of that. I mean, I understand the Loire was marked the, the northern reach of the Moors when they invaded Europe from Africa, 
It happened to be the border between Nazi and, and Vichy France uh, in World War II. Still, the border when you talk about weather in North France and South France, and it's lined with it's lined with castles, and they're pleasure castles today. But the the origins of those pleasure palaces were serious fortified castles, as that would have been one of these you know regional borders you're talking about. Yes, as you say, it is very often only when you cross the Loire that you start to hear crickets and you can feel the, the <laughs> warmth of the south. in the south of France. You know, when you think of France, it, it's the biggest country in Western Europe, but sort of the culture is nibbled away by German culture in Alsace and by Spanish culture creeping over the Pyrenees and certainly by Italian culture coming in to the Côte d'Azur and, and the area around Nice. It's not as vast. It's, it's more diverse, I guess, than, than you might recognize. Yes, and as you say, also um, Arab culture uh, taking a different form now, but coming across the Mediterranean form of migrant workers. Now, that is an interesting thing that you do talk about in your book, and, and I'm curious, how did your studies reflect on, on the non-white Muslim French society today? Because, in a sense, this is nothing new. Yes, it's nothing new, and it must be said that there is uh, still quite a lot of virulent uh, racism in some parts of France. I have a friend who's a distinguished historian of, of French politics who comes from Martinique, and he's quite intrepid. He's been all over France. He's worked in tiny little municipal libraries, uh, but there are some parts of France that he won't go to because it's just too uncomfortable and uh, hmm. sometimes even dangerous. So it is still, in parts, it can be a very xenophobic place. Now, when you think about that, there's a, a huge population of basically migrant is it too simplistic, or are these, is it basically migrant laborers, people coming in from poor countries to find uh, employment in France? Yes, there's a settled immigrant population, many of whom have been there for many generations. But there are also seasonal migrant workers, especially in the south of France. Uh, very often in autumn, if you cycle through the vineyards in almost any region in France, you'll quite often see uh, Africans uh, from West Africa, working in the vineyards uh, or picking fruit in the, the Rhone Valley. It's a seasonal population, which actually ref also reflects much older trends because people did used to move about France a lot more, looking for, for work, um, very often for large parts of the year. Uh, people would leave the Pyrenees and the Alps and leave the women in charge of everything and would be seen as foreign migrants, in the, the northern cities and were also treated very harshly. Well, you know, it's so interesting to recognize in your travels things are in a state of flux and there are bully tribes and there are, you know, um, meek tribes and there are desperate people and there are people who are well set up and there are people that move one place just to get a job so they can feed their kids. Graham Robb, author of The Discovery of France, Thank you so much for putting in 14,000 miles and taking careful notes so all of us travelers can have a little better understanding when we put in probably a few less miles on our bikes as we explore France. You're very welcome, Rick.
Now that we understand how France is a collection of many local concerns, with most of its government and business interests centered in Paris, I think we're ready to explore some more of what the country has to offer a little outside the big city. Paris is always a great place to base yourself, but next, let's plan some fun day trips beyond the Paris metro. You can share your recommendations with us at 877-333-7425 or by email. We're at radio at ricksteves.com. We're exploring some of the great day trips you can enjoy from Paris in just a moment. But first, for a little French language fun, Paris-based tour guide Arnaud Savignon shares a traditional French tongue twister with us. I'm told it proves that English is not the only language with lots and lots of incessant S's to struggle through. He'll also translate the tongue twister into English for us, just so we know not to take what he's about to say too seriously. Hello, so my name is Arnaud, and I am French, and uh, I would love to, to teach you what we call in French a fourche langue, which basically means a forked tongue, so a tongue twister. Um, you know, in France, we're always very long, so I hope it uh, won't be too long, but this is a little story, and it comes really, really fun in French. Un vieux chasseur, sobre, plein de santé, mais atteint de cécité, chaussé de souliers souillés, sans cigare, fut dans la nécessité de chasser seul sur ses champs, si en Sicile, un sinistre chat sauvage. Il siffla ses chiens, châtain, satin, chauvin, et suivit son chemin. Sur son passage, six chasses chérubins siciliens, sans chaussures, sans soucis, chuchotèrent ceci. « Salut, sire chasseur, citoyen sage et plein d'âge, aux yeux chassieux, aux sang chaud, sois chanceux, sache en ce jour serein, sans chagrin, chassé, chose aisée, ce chat sauvage caché sous ses chiches souches de sauge sèche. » Voilà. Voilà. Oh, I got it. Goodness. So here's a story in English. I just translated the way I could. So an old, healthy, sober hunter, but blind, with dirty shoes, without a cigar, had to hunt alone a sinister wildcat in Sicily fields. He whistled his dogs, Chatin, Satin, and Chauvin, and followed the path. On his way, six virtuous Sicilian cupids, without shoes, without worries, whispered this. Hey, little old hunter, wise old citizen with great eyes, hot blood, be lucky. Know that in this serene day without sorrow, hunting this wildcat hidden under dry sedge is an easy job. That's good. Sooner or later, most travelers see the wonders of Paris, and many of us make a habit to go back all our lives. In fact, I'll never tire of Paris. The problem... We overlook the sites nearby, in the shadow of Paris. Right now we're joined by two French tour guides, Elisabeth Van Hest and Antoine Bonfils, and we're going to talk about the wonders of the area around Paris, sites within about an hour or so from the great city. Elisabeth and Antoine, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Antoine, if you were um, hosting a visitor to come to Paris as a guide and they wanted to see four or five attractions near Paris, outside of the city, without describing them, just to name them, what would they be? Well, I would bring them to Giverny, mm-hmm. mainly. Closer to Paris, some place which is Parc de Saint-Cloud. Parc you, de Saint-Cloud. You can have a, an overview of Paris from the, the, the garden. It's magnificent, and it's within 15 mm. minutes out of Paris. Nice. And, uh, of course, Versailles, mm-hmm. mainly because of the garden, and I love outside gardens. And uh, Volvicomte, perhaps. Volvicomte is sort of the um, connoisseur's ca- chateau outside of Versailles. Everybody goes to Versailles, and Volvicomte is another example of a great chateau. Yes, that provocated the jealousy of the king, uh, Louis XIV. So Louis XIV saw how cool Volvicomte was, and he wanted his guys to build Versailles even better. Yeah. Wow. Now, Elizabeth, when we talk about France, we hear the term Ile de France. What does that mean? 
Well, exactly. It will mean island of France. And that is very strange for a part of France in the middle of the country. But you could consider it as surrounded by little streams and rivers. Mm -hmm. But it is also in the way that it is the cradle of the French kingdom. It was in Ile-de-France, a bit north of Paris, where in 987, if I'm right, Hugues Capet was elected king of France, and he will start the very important monarchy of the Capetian kings. So this really is the heartland of France. And I think a lot of us forget when we look at France today, which is about the size of Texas or something that it is, they're not all like waving their French flags all through history. They had to no. be coerced into becoming French people. Oh, yes. And even today, there's this feeling of the people in the Ile-de-France and then the people out in the Provence. Oh, yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. When you speak about Parisians, right. huh? we are a little bit different from all the other French people. Elizabeth von Heston and Antoine Bonfils are our Paris experts right now, and they're inspiring us to allow a few days to enjoy some fun on day trips outside the city next time you're visiting Paris. What kinds of adventures near Paris do you recommend? We're at 877-333-7425, and by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Avalyn's calling in right now with her Paris day trip recommendations from Nashville. Hi, Avalyn. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, do you have a, what is your favorite day trip from Paris? My most favorite trip that we've ever taken from Paris has been out to Vaux. You mean the Chateau Vaux-le-Vicomte? Yes, yes, it wow. is absolutely magnificent. But a lot of people don't even know about Vaux-le-Vicomte. What's so good about it? Well, to me, it is everything that Versailles has to offer, just in a smaller, more intimate setting and with a lot fewer crowds. <laughs> it's amazing, the crowd differences. I was just there uh, filming a few months ago, and we were fighting the crowds at Versailles, and then we went to Vaux, or Vaux-le-Vicomte, and it was like, where are all the people? And... You know, Versailles got a lot of history, and it's probably got more square footage, but Vaux-le-Vicomte is like, ah. I mean, mm -hmm. Elizabeth, what's your take on Vaux-le-Vicomte? Well, there wouldn't be Versailles without Vaux-le-Vicomte, because it was a kind of a revenge. Huh? The king uh, discovered Vaux-le-Vicomte because his minister, Colbert, said, just check on that other minister of you, Nicolas Fouclin, who is building that magnificent house. He does it with your money. And so he organized a very big party in August 1661, and uh, he saw that, in fact, his uh, minister, Nicolas Fouquet, had a more beautiful house than he had. He was serving at the royal table on golden plates, mm. and, of course, Louis was very, very upset. You don't want to show up the king, especially Louis. Exactly. Uh, you're in trouble. Now, now, Fouquet was, Nicolas Fouquet was a... Uh, a banker, wasn't he? He was sort of a, a sort financier. Well, we would call him uh, Ministre des Finances. Oh, yeah. And he was thinking that he was going to get the position of Mazarin, the okay. prime minister. But he was filthy rich. Yes, but he was also clever to find a, a good system to get more money to fill the treasury of the state. Okay, and so we, uh, this is, there's always fascinating parallels today to people who have their fingers on the, the banking in this exactly. day and age. And the, they had it back then, and they didn't have places to stash their money as easily, so they would build these extravagant palaces. And Nicolas Fouquet, he assembled what was called, considered like the dream team. Three guys, yes. can you talk about yes. that? Yes, he, uh, he was very much involved in art, very interested and he found the architect Louis Leveau, uh -huh. and he found the painter Charles Lebrun, uh -huh. and the garden architect 
André Le Nôtre. So these were the greatest garden architect, the greatest painter, and the greatest architect together. Voilà, famous trio. And Evelyn uh, in Nashville, you saw the result of that dream team, didn't you? Oh, it is fabulous. It's just breathtaking. And twice a month on the Saturdays, they run the fountain for mm-hmm. about three hours. So if you time the trip just right, you can actually see the fountains, and it's just spectacular. And did you also see the candles at night, the candle show? No. Unfortunately, we weren't able to be there that Saturday night, but I've seen pictures, and it looks spectacular Yeah, very romantic. Evelyn, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you. Bye now. Joanne's calling in from West Falls, New York. Joanne, thanks for your call. Hi. What's your favorite side trip from Paris? Um, I took my 17-year-old granddaughter in the summer of 2012, and we stayed for two weeks in an apartment and really got into living in Paris. And we, by ourselves, we did really well. Um, We took the train to Versailles and spent the whole day there. We could have spent more time. Now, you spent a day out at Versailles. How was that, dealing with the crowds and and the overwhelming art and history all around you? Um, Sometimes it was a little annoying because you want to get a little closer, and um, there are some people, some tourists there don't. They're not very savvy in etiquette, <laughs> put it right. that way. That's a polite way but, to put it. But uh, you know what? You just go with the flow because that's, you, you know ahead of time that you're going to have crowds. In, in Versailles, going with the flow is a literal thing. I mean, once you oh, step yeah. into that palace, it is a human river, and you hardly, exactly. if you can find a little eddy, that's a good thing. Unless you go at the end of the day. Yeah, that's good. In fact, we were there filming, and uh, we were there at the very end of the day, and it's fun when they're just mm. pushing the last people out of the Hall of Mirrors. You can have it exactly. to yourself a little bit. Antoine, what would you advise for people enjoying Versailles? Yeah, because you're talking about the crowd and all these people mass massing there to visit the place, I would suggest that you try the market on Sunday morning, which is a beautiful market they have there. I used to go there every weekend on my bicycle, and then you can have... Uh, there's an itinerary that allows you to visit the city itself. So all We're the, talking about Versailles? Versailles, yeah. So they have a good market on Sunday morning. Beautiful one, with all the products from uh, farms around the, the place. A lot of people forget Versailles. There is a city at Versailles, which is quite charming. Yeah, it's mainly rich people who live there. We call mm-hmm. them the Versaillais. It's a bit snobbish people, I would mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. but so very well-dressed, and the market is very elegant on Sunday morning. Plus, once again, the city itself has beautiful buildings, old buildings from the 17th, 18th century, and uh, it's very well indicated all over the place. And I believe that on Sunday in season, they run the fountains at the park around Versailles also. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And you can pay to get into the gardens and yeah, skip the Yeah, you could make a just, good combination, mm-hmm. go to the market, then you run into the park, That's because it. the Trianon, the hamlet, which I recommend because it's the most romantic part of Versailles and well, reminding of uh, Mary Antoinette. Well, that opens at 12 o'clock. So once you have seen that, you go back to the chateau and you could even uh, pass through the gardens where about 3, 3.30, the uh, fountains are on. And just before closing time, you can walk through the palace. So we should remind our listeners that Versailles is sort of the palace of palaces in Europe, the other palaces of other royal You know, back then, people really believed in divine monarchs. I mean, God said, this guy gets to rule me without question. And if you're going to be a divine monarch, you better have an impressive house. And Louis would build the biggest house. I think he spent half a year of the entire income of the biggest and wealthiest country in Europe, France, to build this palace. He rerouted rivers, literally, to power the fountains. And uh, this is a, a chance for us travelers to go there and get a sense of the extravagance the royalty did that led to the French Revolution. 
and we can tour the palace. And then uh, the other half that Elizabeth was mentioning is the amazing gardens. And in a way, the, the king would leave the Palace of the Louvre, which before it was a museum, was a palace, to get out into the hunting lodge in Versailles. Louis turned that into a, a lavish, grand, uh, sprawling palace, and then they needed to escape even further. Talk a little bit about that phenomenon, Elizabeth. Well, first of all, Louis XIV, of course, built Versailles because he did it also for a political reason. He wanted to be outside of Paris where there could be riots, and he had this experience in his minority when he was young. And second, he wanted to have all the nobles, Mm. people who could be involved in the government, uh, he wanted to have them with him. So he needed a very big chateau. So he he controlled the Rockefellers and the Kennedys, and he sort of he made them be gamblers and gamers and stuff, just so they could. Exactly, he wanted to to make order. He wanted to dominate everything. Mm -hmm. And now you can understand why Louis the Fourteenth appreciated the French gardens, à la française, where nature is dominated by man. And he loved his gardens. He even wrote a little booklet, How to Visit My Gardens. Really? And, yes. and by having incredible gardens, he was controlling nature, making it really clear that he was above mortals. He was divine. Yes. Louis Fourteenth. Joanne, thanks for your call. Okay, thanks. Bye now. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about side trips from Paris. And our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Ray in Burbank has emailed us, and she says... Uh, Chartres is a a wonderful side trip from Paris, and uh, she enjoyed the cathedral there. And Rebecca called in from Manhattan Beach in California and wanted to know about Euro Disney as a day trip. And, uh, you know, Euro Disney is kind of like Disneyland in in America, but you can drink wine. I guess that's the big difference. Oh, uh, yes. (laughs) Mickey Mouse, I suppose, speaks French. It took a while, but they decided, yeah, you can take wine in the cafeterias, in the restaurants. Disneyland is just a 45-minute train ride from downtown Paris. Is it popular with French kids? Oh, yes, certainly. Yeah, oh, big yes, deal. yes, Very yes. Big deal. And many families, they go there for a weekend. They spend a night there, and then they have two days. So it must be an American fantasy for a French family to go out to Euro Disney. And, you know, for years, uh, we were traveling with our little kids. So Paris was the end of the trip, and if the kids were good for the whole trip, mm-hmm. we'd treat them with a trip to Euro Disney. Disney. I don't think I ever took our kids to California Disney, but they went to Euro Disney several times, and it works just as well. Antoine, Ray mentioned going out to Chartres. What's your take on the Chartres Cathedral? Is that worth counting in on a, as a great side trip from Paris? Well, once again, I'm going to talk about my use because I used to do the pilgrim there from Paris. So it was in two days, 80 kilometers by walking. So it was not that pleasant memory for me. But I I went back there recently and then I can enjoy the magnificent, of course, vitro, the, the Stained glass windows. windows. The stained glass windows and the carving are some of the best from the Gothic age. And when you were coming in as a as a pilgrim, I have this romantic image of a pilgrim walking across the fields, seeing the spire in the distance. Did you see the spire, or was it too modern now? And there's buildings in the way. Yeah, no, no, no. You can still uh, see it, but in my memories, it was more painful, and I didn't have much time (laughs) for your very nice picture you just made. I was just waiting for it to stop. But in short, you can make your, your own stained glasses. They offer you to make them on your own. They have a little uh, workshop there. So I think it's a good uh, way to introduce people to this uh, artisanat. Nice. You can have a hands-on experience making a stained glass window when you go to Chartres. Voilà. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about side trips from Paris. We've talked about the great cathedral in Chartres. We've talked about the wonderful sort of... Uh, inspiration of Versailles in some ways, Vaux-le-Vicomte, of course Versailles is the palace of palaces, 
We didn't talk about Fontainebleau. Fontainebleau is an amazing palace where you've got many different kings leaving their footprint and even Napoleon. I think perhaps mm-hmm. the best Napoleonic sightseeing you can have anywhere is at the palace he enjoyed, Fontainebleau. Exactly, because Napoleon called Fontainebleau the house of the centuries. Since, uh, you see, when you go to Versailles, you speak about Louis XIV, maybe about his success, Louis XV, Louis XVI, but about the Bourbons. Fontainebleau covers the whole monarchy of France. And so it was not attributed to one particular king, and every king built another wing of the palace. It's a bit like a patchwork, and they transformed inside a decoration. So it's a, it's a wonderful place to visit and to enjoy different styles in just one building. It really is. It's the sweep of French history from a monarchy point of view, culminating with Napoleon. Antoine Bonvis and Elizabeth Van Hest, thanks so much for sharing some ways that we can take a great trip to Paris and make it even better by enjoying a few side trips. Merci à vous. Thank you, and au revoir. Au revoir. Au revoir. Des misinettes qui trottinent, des ouvriers qui cheminent, des dactylos qui se pressent, des militaires qui s'empressent, des employés qui piétinent, des amours qui butinent, et toujours en courant, des gens qui montent et qui viennent, et encore en courant, les mêmes gens qui reviennent. Whether it's from the notes you keep in your travel journal, reliving your experiences through your photos, or just something you whip up on the spur of the moment while watching the passing scene from a Parisian cafe, the French capital certainly has inspired many a poet among travelers. Here are some haiku a few of our listeners have sent us about their own impressions of Paris. Christopher Pacharka of Dana Point, California, noticed this about the city. Paris, a jewel box, a delight for the senses, a discreet lady. Barbara Belknap, from Juneau, Alaska, sums up the simple pleasure of a moment in France. A Paris café, croissant, and café au lait, c'est magnifique, eh? And Zach Brown, from Ackworth, Georgia, sends us this one he calls a haiku for the ages. In France, long ago, longing to return so soon, more years pass on by. with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Dana Bublitz, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York City for their studio help this week. You can listen again whenever you like and find out about our guests and the notes for each week's show. Plus, Rick has an app for your mobile phone with detailed walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find it all in the radio pages of ricksteves.com. And we'll look for you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves.